welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm a ghost. <laughs> Ma'am, no, you are not. <laughs> <laughs> it's spooky season, Joe. I'm trying to embrace it. I love this. I love this for us. Uh, yes, yeah, so our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumseh-Tesquetan territory within the unceded traditional lands of Squatmulu. And today's text, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, takes place in a fictionalized version of the town of Marshall, Michigan, the traditional home of the Peoria, Anishinaabe, Potawatomi, and Fox peoples. Joe, do you love that research that I did? This book is based on a real town. Mm-hmm. Yes, in a real house, apparently. I read one, one Wikipedia entry. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Good job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Proud of me. So, Brenna, we're actually joined by a very special guest uh, because I found out that a friend of mine, critic Dee Dee Crimmins, is a big fan of this film. So I invited her on. Hi, Dee Dee. Hi. I'm like, yeah, you did. I think I spontaneously brought this up to you totally unprompted. And you're like, wait a second. Mm -hmm. We can <laughs> talk about this in an official capacity. <laughs> well, official with like some heavy quotations. <laughs> <laughs> Dee Dee is one of those people where every time I talk to her, she fortuitously brings up something. And then I'm like, oh, I'm podcasting about that in a little while. Do you want to come on? <laughs> I think last time I, I brought up Tusk and I threatened physical harm against you if you did a podcast about it without me mm -hmm. or something very similar to that so i didn't threaten you this time but i'm very happy to talk about it. <laughs> she was very <laughs> insistent yes it's so good it's so good but yeah okay so we're gonna begin with the book so brenna what is this much older than i realized book about Yes. Okay. So the book is called, as we said, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, which, by the way, today is the first time I've gotten this title right in any reference of this book to Joe. Like, ever for some reason, I'm like, the clockety house walls, the wallety clock house. <laughs> clockety it's clock clock. Anyway, mouthful, it's yes. a mouthful. It's a uh, mouthful. It's, yeah, published in 1973, Joe. So definitely an older text for us, written by John Belairs. And, and I really hope we talk about this today. I know we will. Mm -hmm. Illustrated by Edward Gorey, because these yes. illustrations are mm, chef's kiss. So good. So good. Yeah. So the book, yeah. uh, published in 1973, but set in like the 50s, uh, it mm -hmm. tells the story of Louis Barnevelt. So Louis is an orphan and in classic 70s kid lit fashion, never comes up again. Parents recently <laughs> dead, never mentioned again. <laughs> um, but he goes to live with his uncle, Jonathan. And Jonathan is like, he's like a warlock. Like he's not just a magician, like he's got real powers, but he's not like... Mm -hmm amazing at warlocking but his next door neighbor mrs zimmerman is a good witch and so the two of them become like these surrogate parents to lewis as he navigates life in a new town mm -hmm. the house that they live in is like you know magic adjacent weird things happen there's this ticking noise constantly um that jonathan is trying to get to the bottom of and lewis is very interested in the kinds of things that he feels like he catches out of the corners of his eyes but really what we come to discover is that the house used to be owned by isaac and selena izzard who uh were e evil magicians basically evil wizards and <laughs> Among, like, many things they wanted out of life and magic, uh, they really wanted to 
end the world. Yeah, they're magic. <laughs> you know, as you do. As you do. And so in like this sort of very kind of Edgar Allan Poe, but not like throwback, they bury a clock in the walls of the house or somewhere. It's in the basement. It's in the house somewhere. And it ticks <laughs> constantly uh, as it sort of ticks down to the destruction of the world. It's a doomsday clock, Brenna. Mm hmm. Okay. Is that like a thing? <laughs> Dee Dee, this is how you know Brenna doesn't watch enough horror films. I'm like, yeah, of course. It's a thing. <laughs> this is this the vibe of our show constantly is Joe saying things that everyone knows about and me going, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the sort of timeline of Lewis, he's basically, he's trying to fit in. Everybody makes fun of him. It's very important to the story that Lewis is fat. We have to be told that nearly mm. constantly. We'll unpack uh, that a bit 70s. later. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and about the only kid who will talk to him is this kid named Tarby who has just broken his arm and so can't play sports anymore. And so he's like equally not able to hang with the other kids. Mm-hmm. And so in this sort of like escalating series of attempts to get Tarby to think he and his family are cool, he keeps trying to demonstrate the magic that his uncle is capable of, which eventually like, oops, raising the dead is sort of where that culminates. Uh, (laughs) And then, yeah, so then eventually, like, obviously, Jonathan and Mrs. Zimmerman have to be brought into like the situation with Lewis, and they have to try to not let the world end. And that's the mm-hmm. book. And I liked it. Okay. Yeah. Dee, I'm curious, because you came into this talking about the film, but had mm-hmm. you read the book? Did you know that the film was based on one? No, I'm like, I was just like, I slid into home film first. I only read the book for this podcast. I knew it was based on a book, okay. but I'd never and get engaged with it at all i think initially i saw the film because i was assigned to review it not that it wasn't like a wide release and people Mm. knew about it so that's why it kind of like feels like it was handed to me a little bit but i didn't read it or anything until now right yeah i found this i don't want to say it's aggressively 70s oh it's so 70s It, it is quite 70s but the thing that struck me is how much of a precursor to something like harry potter this belt Mm -hmm. like i could Mm -hmm. not get over the similarities to the point that i wanted to be like oh she who must not be named clearly lifted whole sections of this because it feels like lewis has gone off to magical boarding school and then he and his friend get into a bunch of adventures and the adults aren't telling him everything until it all culminates at the end of the year oh man i had the exact opposite reaction (laughs) sorry sorry i was like reading this and also like i looked at your bingo card ahead of time which i know we're gonna get to and i was like this is so different than harry potter i was like this isn't like (laughs) the predetermined chosen child he's just a normal kid and i kind of appreciate that about him because so much of a hero's journey stuff is like you know you're special it's like the last starfighter it's like you're the only person who can save us now and that's really not the case and that kind of feels realer which is like this is all made up but yeah so anyway so that was my reaction about how un harry potter it was okay well i I do like that and i like the book similar to you brenna but i was repeatedly frustrated at how we keep lewis at arm's length from all of the action so it's often the adults rushing off to do something and lewis kind Mm -hmm. of being unsure about what's going on and obviously we change that when we get to the movie but Yeah, you're right, Dee Dee. In a lot of ways, this is an average character. And I do think that that's where the fatness becomes important. Even though I don't think 
Bellers is doing a good job of being <laughs> kind to Lewis. No. I do think it's significant that he is a normal fat boy who ends up being the savior of the world, not mm-hmm. because he's a chosen one, just because he's smart and he's capable. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. He's a good kid. And he wants to do well, even though he's done bad. And it's interesting. And I want to come back to this, Joe, because I agree with you that like large chunks of the text are basically like Mrs. Zimmerman and Jonathan like whispering behind closed doors while Lewis is like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on. But the inverse becomes true in like the back, I don't know, maybe 30 pages of the book where Lewis is really the one who has to save the day. Mm -hmm. And that gets inverted in the film too, where I feel like Jonathan and Mrs. Zimmerman are a lot more active in the climax of the film than we see in the book. So it's interesting because, yeah, he is a very every kid hero. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's definitely clearly written in a time when, like, it was just okay to be just straight up horrible to people um, in your (laughs) text. Because it's interesting that, like, I don't feel a lot of fondness between John Belairs and his protagonist, which I find interesting. Like, it's almost like he's annoyed by Lewis a lot of the time, which <laughs> works well because so too is the rest of the universe, right? Like, that's sort of the, the role that Lewis feels is totally outcast and isolated. And like the death of his parents is, it's never mentioned again, but obviously it's left him feeling really isolated and alone. Yeah. yeah. I wonder, can we use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about Tarby? Because... I felt like Tarby was the most interesting character in the book because I kept waiting for him to discover that Lewis is actually a good friend and that he should be Mm -hmm. kinder to him. And Mm. no, that character Mm -mm. is garbage. And I hadn't, I felt like I hadn't seen that before in a book where that isn't the role of the main antagonist and or villain. This also felt very 70s to me because it felt a bit like Tarby can't be good because he's not from a good family. Like, there's this real sense of, like, his origins kind of predetermine his fate. And because we don't get his perspective, there's never any opportunity for him to redeem it. So, like, Belair's just, like, digs right in on that idea. I mean, when they go, when he goes to his house, I found that whole scene deeply uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, well, it never seems like Tarby actually likes Lewis all that much. Mm. No. You know, he calls him fatso, all this stuff. Like, he is just kind of playing with him because his arm's broken and he can't play with his usual friends. And the thing that is a little dismaying to me is that Lewis doesn't seem to understand, like, you need to like your friends and they need to like you back. Because he seems like he's really never had one. Right. So he's just kind of like, this kid is next to me, so therefore he's my closest friend. It's like, well... Yeah, but the sliding scale is just awfully off on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is when you need to advocate for yourself that you can do better than the friend who treats you like garbage. Yeah. It's interesting, though, right? Because this is where it would be helpful to have, I don't know, like maybe five pages of Lewis's life before his parents die. Because Mm. there are times when I felt like, you know, like Lewis is not an alien visiting earth for the first time and yet his interactions (laughs) with other humans often feel that way right like i was a bit thrown by that dynamic yeah and this is the rare i know that we're not to the point of not necessarily contrasting the book with the movie yet but i feel it felt like this was the rare time where the movie had more character development definitely Mm. yeah usually you get so much of that richness and it never quite makes it on screen because it's you know you can't wedge it into however much time but so much more even like mrs zimmerman has so much more background 
in the film than she does in the book. I have feelings about her background, though. Remind me to get there when we get to this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder, is I, I don't want to keep saying, oh, it's the 70s of it all, but is <laughs> this just a bit of a byproduct where we're painting in broad strokes, you know, oh, you're poor, that must mean you're bad. You're magical, that must mean you can pick whether you're going to be good or bad. But of course, it has to be one or the other. It's a stark binary. And it just feels like, I don't know, it's a highly readable book. Like, you could just breeze through the sucker very, very quickly. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to care a ton about any of his characters, I would argue. Like, Jonathan, to me, feels like the de facto protagonist, even though Lewis is very obviously the hero. I want to fill in some of your blanks, Joe, there, just for listeners, because I don't think Joe is saying that there were no complicated characters in the literature of the 70s. I I think the line (laughs) that we're drawing here is that juvenile literature in Mm. the 70s was really not what it is now, right? Like, we've talked about this on the show lots and lots, the development of young adult as a category, and the movement from like books being really didactic in their intent and scope to being more like the kinds of stories we read today. But I do think there's an element of that happening here, right? Because this feels like a book for middle graders in particular, mm-hmm. like the scariest book a middle grader could pick up kind of vibes. At the book fair. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it definitely has scholastic book fair vibes. Um, and I think that's why we have such one-dimensional characters, because they're all filling in kind of the roles in what is ultimately like, I mean, this is a lesson book in a way, mm-hmm. right? Like, Lewis should have told Jonathan what was going on a lot sooner and Lewis should have recognized that Tarby wasn't a good friend and like there's a lot of sort of didacticism built into this even though obviously it's you know it's got the trappings of genre about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I did appreciate the terms of the lessons that this book teaches Lewis specifically and therefore the audience that's supposed to you would think relate to him just based on age was at the end it's just like no adults can be cool like it's like you you can tell them stuff they might not get mad at you even if you messed up they're human too they understand things like they were kids once like i really appreciated that 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 was a big takeaway at least for me at the end Hmm. maybe i'm still learning that lesson but just that last scene (laughs) but just that last scene there it made it seem like we're not going to make a huge deal out of this but it's fine right yeah i really appreciated jonathan's reaction like the fact that he you know, of course, he always he already knew. knew. That's always an important part of these books, too, is that, like, you've been holding this thing secret from adults, but actually, they already knew. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I like it here because, yeah, for exactly what you're pointing out, Dee, like, Jonathan's response is very kind. And there's a real sense, you know, Lewis is feeling a certain amount of precarity. Like, he's an orphan. He doesn't really know these people. He's just arrived here. Mm-hmm. And this final scene is like, actually, like, we're your family. This is where you belong. You can talk to us about things that I actually found. I was surprised by how moving I found to the end of this book. Hmm. I mean, I think the other thing, it's absolutely all of those things that the two of you have talked about. It's also setting up a long running franchise, right? Like this is book one mm-hmm. of... Uh, I didn't do this. <laughs> I did not do the research, but there are a number of books following these characters. So in some ways, this is the everything's going to be okay until we get to our next adventure. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why don't we transfer over to the film? Because I do feel like we might have more to talk about. Mm-hmm. 
Hello. You're Lewis, I presume. You'll see. Things are quite different here. Except something horrible. So, you've told Lewis everything? Well, not everything. So, The House with a Clock in Its Walls comes out in 2018. It is written by Eric Kripke, who is the creator of such things as Supernatural and Amazon's The Boys. So, that's immediately odd, right off the top. <laughs> and then we have the director, Eli Roth, who, again, <laughs> Didi and I know this guy pretty well because he's the man behind things like Cabin Fever and the Hostel films. Yeah, that's why oh. I was laughing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah, like he's he's a schlocky director. <laughs> I also found out that I'm pretty sure he was at the time married to the woman who plays Lewis's mother. Yes, Lorenza Izzo. Uh, mm -hmm. She appears in a number of his films. So rounding out the rest of the cast, we have Jack Black as Jonathan, Kate Blanchett as Mrs. Zimmerman, we have Owen Baccaro as Lewis, Renee Elise Goldsberry as Selena, Kyle MacLachlan as Isaac Izzard, Sonny Soljic as Tarby, and then in a small role, but would have become significant if this had to become a franchise, Vanessa Ann Williams as Rose Rita. That's the girl who kind of stands up for Lewis or befriends him as the movie ends. And then we have Colleen Camp as Mrs. Hanchett, the neighbor, who of course is secretly Selena Izzard in disguise. And I just wanted to begin our conversation of the film by acknowledging that there's a couple of significant differences, as always. As Didi said, a lot more character development. There's a lot more magic overall visually in the film. A lot of folks pointed out Lewis is not fat, and mm -hmm. that is not the reason why he is targeted for bullying and mockery in the film. It's just because he's weird. So that's a pretty significant change. And then the other disappointing thing is that in the book, Selena is the main adversary and Isaac barely kind of comes back at the end. And in the film, Kyle MacLachlan's Isaac is very much the villain. And Renee Elise Goldsberry is sadly relegated to just a couple of spooky background stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was interested in that change. Yeah, I was a little disappointed that, like, in the book, it's kind of this badass woman who's, like, 
mm-hmm. you know, disguising herself as the neighbor only later in the book. And in the film, it's just kind of like, oh, she's, you know, she's just a sidekick. She's the cheerleader. She's not really necessarily the one with the plans, let alone the power here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little disappointing. There's so many changes, though. And I do like that you brought up the fact that, like, visually, it's that much more magical. Because the book, I think, I mean, I was slightly disappointed reading the book after seeing the movie because that's first of all that's usually how it goes right but also the fact that like the chair that's kind of like a dog and follows Mm -hmm. them around like that none of that's in there it's only just the it's really only the stained glass window in the book that keeps changing right so the world of the film is way more masculine than the world of the book which i find really interesting so not only do we have uh serena izzard who becomes serena izzard who becomes kind of like this more background type character but we also have like jack black we get told about how good kate blanchett's version of mrs zimmerman is at magic and of course she she does become very important at the end of the film but Mm -hmm. jack black is not like a mediocre magician here right like his jonathan is very magical can do all kinds of remarkable amazing things and so it's interesting where in the book it's mrs zimmerman and serena who have the power it's mm. inverted really effectively in the film. And I guess it's part of that has to do with the, the casting, but uh, it's still an interesting choice. I found it a little bit disappointing after reading the book. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I can't help but wonder if this is a byproduct of, ooh, well, we've got Jack Black, so we need to give mm. him just way more to do because... Physically, especially. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I did appreciate as the film goes on that Kate Blanchett actually gets to do more and it and really she is revealed to be a much better witch than he is a wizard but you're right you know in the book you almost think he does a lot of parlor tricks and then every once in a while jonathan will actually pull out something that's kind of significant like when he does the the show and tell with the stars and stuff in the backyard Mm -hmm. that's a big moment in the book Mm. but it feels like that might be jonathan starting to tap the top of what he can deliver whereas with mrs zimmerman it's like oh Anything you need her to do, she can probably do it for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, in terms of like physicality of the difference between the characters in the book versus the movie, I remember in the book, the description of Mrs. Zimmerman is like, this is the most wrinkled person he'd ever seen in his life. I'm like, well, Kate, <laughs> right. Kate Blanchett possibly has the best skin I've ever seen in my life. So oh this is God, kind of different. Stunning. <laughs> gorgeous. Gorgeous. Also, as a purple lover, I'm like, this is just I want her wardrobe, though I don't know where I would wear it. <laughs> I was underwhelmed by the purple in the film. I really thought we were going to get more purple. But, you know, like it's a it's a healthy amount. I think on screen, purple <laughs> on purple on purple might have been just a little too much. Mm-hmm. While we're on the topic of Mrs. Zimmerman, I do want to touch on her backstory because... Oh, boy. <laughs> so while in general, I was like, yay, we have more fleshed out characters across the board. Like, I like that we have the magic eight ball that's this gift from his parents. It's, Lewis mm-hmm. has this magic eight ball. It's a gift from his parents that really kind of connects him with the idea of the supernatural as well. Like, I liked all of those little touches. But, man, Mrs. Zimmerman, it's like, oh, we need to give a, the old single woman a backstory. It's probably gonna be a dead kid. Let's just let's just kill off a kid to give her an interesting backstory. I was like, oh man. Especially because it's not really part of her arc until it's convenient for the narrative. So I was a little bit I just I feel like Mrs. Zimmerman is very interesting in the book and Kate Blanchett does a beautiful performance. I enjoyed mm-hmm. watching her. I have no complaints about like her enacting it. I just thought they made a bunch of choices to make her less interesting in the screenplay. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, my takeaway is that Jonathan and Mrs. Zimmerman are queer and they're basically yeah. in a lavender marriage in the book. They're effectively spending all of their time together but there's no sexual relationship so they're just the best of friends and have no romantic interest in each other or anyone else and then in the film it feels like we need to make sure that no one would think that so we give her a backstory and it's like well she's smoking hot Kate Blanchett so how do we argue the fact that she's not seeing someone well let's give her a tragic backstory (laughs) It's very true. I did find the book surprisingly queer. We didn't really talk about that in the first part, but I think that is something that the the movie works really hard to kind of buff the edges off of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Joe, you said like the lavender marriage, like she's wearing purple all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. Like, yeah. No, I thought the book was incredibly queer coded. Even to the point that Lewis and Tarby could be considered, you know, like, why is Lewis so desperate to pursue a friendship with Tarby? And it kind of feels like Tarby is only able to reciprocate when he doesn't have the luxury of other friends and traditionally masculine sports. Yeah, exactly. It's it's almost that that need to sort of step outside these very gendered spaces that the rest of the world works within. The house is like... The house is a queered space. It's separate mm-hmm. from all of that. Um, but the graveyard is also a queered space in the same kind of way. So yeah, I think, I don't know. It's a very 1973 exploration of that, but I, it worked mm-hmm. for me. And I don't, it's not that I really expected to see it in the film, because like, I've seen a movie before. <laughs> like, I understand what happens. Um, <laughs> but I did, I did hope for more of the subtext to survive, I think. Right. I can't help but wonder i mean 2018 it's an interesting year because we really start to see a lot of filmmakers trying to reconcile the impacts of a trump election and i don't want to do too much of a political read into a major motion picture that is clearly aimed at families but i just don't think you're going to get two queer coded adults adopting a wayward orphan (laughs) and being like let's indoctrinate you into our very queer magic i'm using air quotes (laughs) lifestyle Yeah, I mean, the film basically says no homo when they give her her background. Yes, Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of casting, though, like, one thing I wanted to touch on a little bit is that I remember when this came out and I adored it. And I I found myself saying over and over again, like, don't see Goosebumps 2, see this instead. Right. And I remember the Jack Blackness of it all. So I'm wondering if that's maybe why they upped Jonathan's presence in the film as having Mm -hmm. this, you know, bigger named actor who Mm -hmm. also very, very easy to sell this as Goosebumps 2, even though it wasn't Goosebumps 2 at the very same time. 100%. The weirdest thing is that Goosebumps 2 comes out the exact same year as this. So we're getting two Jack Black performances. And folks, peek behind the curtain. We'll talk about Goosebumps 1 in just a couple of weeks. Ooh, yay. It's a lot of Jack Black this month, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, here's the thing. If you can divorce yourself from the source material, which is always very difficult, depending Mm. on which order you read them in and watch them in, I think that this movie is actually a lot of fun. Yes. It's a little bit manic in places. It was a bit more juvenile than I would have liked. All of the poop jokes really didn't (laughs) land for me. I was just like, oh, this movie is a bit too scary for young kids. And this humor feels sometimes pitched at like your younger sibling that you might have dragged along to the theater. Yeah, I definitely felt that. I also found the book a lot more sort of atmospherically creepy, scary than I found the film until 
until the toys come to life. And then I found the film very creepy and upsetting. Um, but oh, I boy. think yeah, they're, they're straight up scary, the baby. And then can I just say one of the most uncanny, unsettling things I've ever seen in cinema is the baby with Jack Black's man head on it. <laughs> oh, boy. That is clearly meant to be very funny, and it was just terrifying. It's just scary. (laughs) Yeah, and Eva Jack Black even comments on the, like, dolls coming to life before they come to life, how creepy it is. And we're like, yeah, it's really freaking weird, dude. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the book, there's that whole car chase scene that never makes it into the film that I just adored. And that added the atmosphere of, like, there's something bigger than what's going on in the house. And I really mm-hmm. liked that. And that just, it didn't make it into the film. It really did feel like we spent a ton of time and money developing the house. Like people who are fans of the book did appreciate the effort that went into the set design of the house. Mm-hmm. Like it is very gothic. It's got a lot of clocks. It's got, you know, a kind of spooky vibe to it. But too much of the tone of the overall film is almost jokey Jack Blackiness. And I don't always think that's a problem, particularly if you are a fan of the actor. But if you go into this looking for a gothic horror film that's friendly to a myriad of ages, I don't think this is going to hit the mark. And it almost feels like because we spent so much money on the house, like this movie wasn't cheap, but it wasn't expensive. It's 42 million. It ended up grossing 131.5 million worldwide. So it's not a hit and it's not a huge flop, but it was not, it was not a success overall. And I can't help but wonder if they spent most of the money on the star power and the house. And then they're like, oh, we have no money left over for a car chase. (laughs) It's a shame because, yeah, you're right. That car chase connects us to the larger implications of what's happening. It also, you know, it puts the three of them in a space that isn't either their house or Mrs. Zimmerman's house, which is a nice Mm -hmm. thing to happen in the book. So, yeah, it would have been nice to see. But your argument's probably true, Joe. (laughs) Any significant set pieces that we want to talk about from the film? I love the front yard with all the jack-o'-lanterns. Okay. I'm that's just such a flat way to say that, but like the fact that I mean this came out in September that year, so clearly they're gearing up for like spooky season. Mm-hmm. And Jack Black even says those are not in the book at all as, as far as I remember. No. And Jack Black as they're walking and he's like, "Are you decorated for Halloween?" He's like, "No, they're always here." And then when they come alive, when the house is trying to like stop them from finding the clock like it's gross and it's got guts spewing out and like mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett is kind of using her wand as a gun and destroying them all I thought that was just kind of <laughs> I thought it was kind of fun and like again like it's not quite as bad as a poop joke but it was just kind of like this is the kind of like gross out fun stuff you that is very low stakes that you expect to see in a kid's like horror-ish film mm-hmm. and I did appreciate the fact that Jack Black is just like their teeth are made of pumpkin like he actually says that or I should say Jonathan says that in the film and I appreciated <laughs> that of him being like guys this it can't be that bad and then it like pukes on him so right I don't know I thought that was fun I remember when I saw it at first I was like this I don't know if I've seen something like this before why not Hmm. yeah I mean if you can't go spooky and you don't want to just keep doing hedge poop jokes this feels like a bit of a nice compromise because it's not as scary as the dolls which i think are legitimately creepy and scary particularly if you're a younger audience Uh whereas this feels oh okay those those pumpkins are very threatening but then they're also going to just puke guts on you and that seems silly and fun and a little bit spooky Uh until you realize that the guts are adhesive 
Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. I will say I knew it was coming, but I was still a little bit disappointed that we basically do a, ooh, the house itself is part of the clock at the end, and then we have to stop the gears. Like, there was something simplistic about the book where it's revealed to just be a regular old clock and we just have to destroy it whereas mm-hmm. in the film as always we really escalate all the visual effects and the danger but i did think it was kind of fun that we used the magic eight ball that was a good use of that device mm-hmm. yeah i liked the way that carried all the way through i did find the scene where he uses the eight ball to like there's this strange scene where they're like, Lewis, you come up with the most ridiculous thing you can imagine. And that's definitely mm-hmm. where the clock's going to be. And I was like, what? Where is this coming from? And it was nice to see the eight ball come back for that, especially right. because, of course, at the beginning of the film, Jonathan like mocks the eight ball. That's not real magic. And mm-hmm. he sort of has to apologize because it's a gift from Lewis's parents. So I like that it came back. But I found that scene very it's a bit too much. It didn't much. work for me. Yeah, it did not work <laughs> for me. I will put it that way. Like, I liked seeing Lewis get to, you know, be his whole self, mm-hmm. I guess, but I didn't find that a very persuasive scene in general. Yeah, I will say one thing that I want to recognize is that I think Baccaro, the actor who's playing Lewis, well, not a good match for what we know of the character in the book. I think as a young actor, he's doing a really good job of anchoring this film overall uh you know he's very easy to empathize with he's got a very emotive face and i think he has really good chemistry with jack black and kate blanchett who are not a comedy duo (laughs) i went in expecting to work and i think they also have really good on-screen chemistry so the casting for me really work in this movie I was surprised how much it worked for me i am not like on record as the hugest jack black fan in the world Mm -hmm. i love him in high fidelity and dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I went in being like, oh, good. Jack Black is on the cover of this book. Thanks, Joe. Really? Ooh. Uh, yeah. But no, honestly, I found him I found him good in this role. His over the topness obviously works when he's playing like a literal magician. Mm-hmm. The ramping up of the physical comedy that doesn't exist in the book works really well. First of all, it works well on screen because it's just fun to watch. But also, obviously, yeah. Black sells it really, really well. And I actually found, you know, there's not a lot of like sort of emotional high points for his character, but I thought he did well with the kind of bumbling uncle trying to be a father figure absent from the family for some time kind of vibe. Like I actually really, I bought it, which I did not expect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he can really do the whole like strange, but you still somehow trust him because he's kind of warm and looking out for you, but absorbed into his own little world sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the character tete-a-tete between Jonathan and Mrs. Zimmerman, but even in the book and in the film, just like making fun of each other, just really quick-witted. Like they're just funny mm-hmm. and they ha- clearly, you don't do that to people you don't have an affection for coming from a very teasy mm-hmm. family. Yeah. So like, that's something I really related to. And I do think, I do agree entirely that I think even though um, this Lewis doesn't quite, doesn't really fit the book at all, it, the casting for it for the film fit very specifically because they also added this whole element of him being like a word nerd and like really Mm -hmm. precocious and like Mm -hmm. constantly defining words which for me i'm like did someone like read a series of unfortunate events and decide to put the like wordsmithing from those books into here because it doesn't right it just kind of seems to come out of left field in the film have knowing the book 
but mm-hmm. it work it works here and it's a reason for him to not be able to relate to kids necessarily and this like the kid kind of pulls it off like he just can't he can relate he to does. like dictionaries and not people yeah yeah and and i think that makes it an easier transition from i mean again we don't really know too too much about lewis's life beforehand even though we do get images of his mom which of course are later revealed to be nefarious mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that's fine because i think as a storytelling device it mostly works you know it's yeah. him being guided to make bad decisions as opposed to in the book where he's just sort of making bad decisions for himself mm-hmm. but uh i i liked that he has difficulty relating to the quote-unquote real world and his i guess erudite nature makes him a better fit for the world of magic where it's like study these books practice these spells you too can become a wizard you're not special anybody can do it but only certain people will have the dedication to follow through Mm -hmm. okay so overall this is an interesting mixed bag like there are certain things i really like about the book and certain things i really like about the film and i think it's a solid adaptation but it is making Mm -hmm. some weird choices where i can imagine you might like one quite a bit more than the other yeah i could see like if you read this book as a kid and it means a lot to you i could see how this film might not scratch the itch particularly effectively but Mm -hmm. i enjoyed watching the film and i liked the book as well it had that 1970s thing for me where every time i sat down to read it i would read a bunch of it but i had to convince myself to sit down and read it you know (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) like it just it was never my first choice Mm-hmm. But overall, I would recommend both. I think they're both good spooky season. They're good family. Like if you want to have a family Halloween night, these are good texts to pick up. They're widely, I think, appealing to folks. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, I was. I, this was a good place to start spooky season, Joe, I think. Yeah. Didi, what about you? Do you prefer the film having seen it first? Or were you able to gain an appreciation for the book? I was definitely able to gain an appreciation for the book. And I think if I'm looking for something really brain candy, I might go back and read some of the other ones. Because why not? It's an afternoon. Yeah. But like I do, Joe, you using the word adaptation, like books and movies are not the same thing. They can't tell the same stories Mm -hmm. in the same way. And I think expecting them to is just only setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. So I do think making changes from one medium to the another and smart changes and ones that make sense are a mm-hmm. good are a very good thing so i do appreciate very much so the differences between the two and how intentional they are but i love the movie it's just so magical it's so stupid i am one of the people who <laughs> i actually really like jack black like i love Kate blanchett like right yeah it's yeah. ticking a lot of boxes for you it's ticking a lot of boxes for me i laughed when the hedges like poop all over things like <laughs> <laughs> it just got like a certain level of charm to it that I truly think is quite successful. And I still think it's weird that Eli Roth directed it. It's so weird, Brenda. Like, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea, and I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't worry. We will never do an Eli Roth text after this for this podcast. <laughs> Writing that down as a thing you've committed to. <laughs> <laughs> after movies, maybe. No. <laughs> All right. Well, ladies, why don't we play a quick round of YA bingo with these texts? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, now, as is the custom when we have a guest, Joe makes me wait. So, Dee Dee, do you want to go first? So, I think for me, one of the first most obvious ones is good friendships between mm. uh, Mrs. Zimmerman and Jonathan. Yes. Because they are just so perfectly matched and charming and whatnot. 
Oh, and we do have dead body because there mm-hmm. is necromancy. <laughs> if you guys had necromancy, that would be that much more of a specific one on this. And I don't <laughs> I think I would imagine. get. Yeah, I don't think I would get ticked very often. But we do have dead bodies in this and mm-hmm. dead family with the parents being killed off beforehand. That would also tick that box. Yeah, yeah, and there are even more dead family members in the film versus the movie. So many dead family members. So many dead family <laughs> members. <laughs> Oh, and house porn. Sorry. I maybe I'm overstepping my bound, but definitely house porn here. Yeah. I don't know that I could deal with that many ticking clocks, but I did no. kind of love the vibe of the movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of like velvets and tapestries and damask. And I, <laughs> as a very heavy sleeper, I could totally sleep with all those clocks. So I can move in oh. as it. I can move in as is and it'd be fine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the house made me feel deeply claustrophobic, but I appreciate both of your perspectives on that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm i going to give it to CGI, obviously. Right. There's lots of that in the film. I'm going to pull on the road trip square for the book, oh, as we did okay. say we missed it in the film, but it does exist in the book. Queer secondary character for everything that's happening in the book, just the whole <laughs> the book. The book itself is my queer secondary character, Joe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, obviously Magic Supernatural. Yes. Yeah, that's a pretty obvious one for this. I'm curious, Brenna, will you allow me to select a holiday prom or wedding, if only because in the book we do get repeated references to various stages as we move through the calendar year, but I kind of want to say, no. is an eclipse a holiday? No! Go away! Go, no! Go away! <laughs> Absolutely not! There's Christmas in the book. There is Christmas in the book, yeah, it has to and be I think like Halloween a set is. Piece. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Does he not raise Serena on Halloween, Brenna? That, that's okay. Okay, I will give you Halloween for the raising of the dead. <laughs> but like, it's not just that square is not just time passes and a holiday goes by. I'm just saying. <laughs> See, Dee Dee, this is what I'm dealing with. She's so rigid. <laughs> She's so rigid. I mean, oh, someone has to be. Fair. fair. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say perfect date in a non-sexual sense for when we're trying to woo Darby with this visual presentation in the backyard. Mm, I like that. Oh, yeah. And I think stun casting, because really, this is a movie where (laughs) it probably doesn't get made if you don't have Kate Blanchett and Jack Black. Absolutely. I would also make an argument, Joe, for borrowed time. Because once the once the body is out of the ground, you're really ticking down that clock to the end of the world. Yeah, like literally ticking it down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, is the Jack Black baby body in the movie Forever Young? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Honestly, listeners, if you haven't watched the film, I need you to just go Google for an image of the Jack Black baby. It's... If it has it's to be terrifying. in my brain, it should also be in everyone else's. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely the wildest part of this movie. Uh, not something I was expecting. No. <laughs> okay, the only other one that I have is uh, montage. Oh, yeah, the magic learning montage? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. But sadly, this does not give us a line because it just gives us like a healthy smattering. It's almost like a shotgun blast across the bingo board, but not a line. (laughs) (sighs) Jack Black, you done me wrong again. (laughs) 
Uh, so we're staying in the realm of the funny spooky with next week's episode, Joe, as we look ahead to love and monsters. And then as you've already teased, we're going to be doing some goosebumps in the future. We've got some scary stories to tell in the dark. It's just, it's a very, it's a very spooky month, Joe. I don't know if you know this, it's mm-hmm. October and a lot of people what? do Halloween type stuff this time of year. Shocking. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to get in touch with us about this or anything else you've heard on the show, you can find us on most socials at HKHSPod. And for long form things, the email is HKHSPod at gmail.com. DD, if folks want to find you and talk about all things house with a clock in its walls, where do they find you? Oh, man, I can't quit Twitter yet. So that's mm. probably the good place. It's so I'm still calling it Twitter, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm uh, DD Krim. That's D-E-D-E-C-R-I-M on there. Nice. nice. And Joe, how about you? I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. I am not on Twitter, but I am everywhere else. In fact, I just changed my handle on Instagram to match. So find me everywhere mm-hmm. uh, there. So until <laughs> next time, let me just say, Didi, a joy having you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. This was fun. <laughs> and uh, Joe, I will see you on the page. Indeed. And I'll see you, Brenna, on the screen. Okay, Brenna, you want to take us home? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, Wait, no, I don't. Yes, I do. It's Love and Monsters next week, right? Yes. Hey.